This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This is Philosophy versus Improv, where two sages try to teach each other a thing or two, and maybe you, the audience, get something out of it as well. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, a philosophical empath who's today stretching my feelings out to improv. And I'm Bill Arnett, an improv sympath taking on the feelings of philosophy. I'm here to learn philosophy. (laughs) And our special guest today, Stephen, introduce yourself. I'm Steven West. I, I'm just a guy that does a philosophy podcast. Sometimes I owed Mark some money and I didn't have it. So he said I could pay him by trade. I do a philosophy podcast and that's why I'm here. A philosophy podcast called philosophize this, which is I think many times more popular than partially examined life. Not deservingly. The ratings, more and more things keep coming in the philosophy category. We keep getting pushed down. We're lucky if we're in the top 20 now, but you remain like number two. Number three, something very high up there. It would look like that. But my dad actually owns Spotify. My grandfather started iTunes. And (laughs) I just sort of, I'm privileged in that regard. Your grandfather started iTunes. He must have been pretty good for an old man to come up with that (laughs) technology. Yeah, Steve Jobs was actually my godfather. He taught me everything I know about morality, which I'm going to relay to you here today. Well, Mark, you're a philosophy podcaster's philosophy podcaster. That's bad. That means we have a very small audience. Only of philosophy podcasters. That's dreadful. Oh, they're a comedian's comedian. That's why they're not popular. They get booked on all the shows, but no one understands why. Oh, they're a comedian's comedian. People said I'm an improver's improver when I did improv, which just means I suck. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. We could convince that guy to take classes. Yeah, he has money. (laughs) And he's stupid enough to drive an hour to and from Seattle to do it for eight weeks straight. (laughs) There we go. Yeah. I got to tell you how prepped Steven was about this, that he's not only taken an improv class in the past, was comfortable with that, unlike almost all of our philosophy guests, and also called me on the phone. We talked through, so we know our topic. We're not going to tell you immediately, Bill. And I think if any philosopher on the show is in a good position to give a real chance to the idea that, like the Socratic method, which is a back-asswards way of presenting philosophy without actually presenting philosophy, perhaps improv can do the same thing. And I feel like you are in a good position to help me test whether that is in fact the case, Stephen. I am interested. I think rhetoric is one of the most underappreciated aspects of philosophy. I think it was appreciated in the ancient world much more than it is today. I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there for people personally, but I would like to make a clarification. You said that I'm comfortable about the improv. I literally took one improv class. I just said that I know what's coming. Like Mm -hmm. the person whose head is in the guillotine knows what's coming. They're comfortable with their fate, but that doesn't mean that they like it. So I am here and I'll do the best I can and hopefully learn. Oh, Mark, the very first time we did this, what was the lesson? Repeat things that you've been improvising this entire time. (laughs) Yes. You've already been improvising. I even pitched that to him on the phone. Oh, there we go. Okay. That's how prepped we are. We're over prepped. Okay, perfect. Nothing so far that's been said here is not 
written down. We wrote a script and this is it exactly. This is the best we could come up with. This was draft five. Putting that aside. So I think we could then, Bill, to refresh the audience, the philosophy lesson, Bill, are you still bringing in improv lessons? You haven't run out? No, I haven't run out. Some might be recycled or some might be reinforced. You know, that's the kind of thing, too, is that if we were playing like a sport or playing baseball, we would do drills. We do the same thing over and over again. We'll start by stretching. Infield, we're just going to throw to first base. You know, we're just going to hit some grounders. And it's like, well, week to week. Well, oh, we did some grounders last week, you know. But if for some reason in the improv world and perhaps in the philosophy world as well, re-examining something you've already re-examined is taboo. Pretty much. I'm I'm not happy about it. That could be a philosophy lesson. I don't know. And at the very end, we will force Stephen, force him to choose between the lessons, the one that he was familiar with, the one that he was not familiar with, which one has the most profound effect on him, on the world, on uh, future generations. Hmm. I like it. Do you have a thing to start us off on, Bill? And then, Steve, you and I will try to incept I'm going to tell you this time, Bill, we're going to incept whatever you have us do with our topic. All right. Well, I thought since Stephen has taken an improv class, we would just get right off the bat and probably do the one thing he was asked, told never to do. And that is to say no. And I feel as a long toothed improviser that you can actually, we say no in life. We say no in TV shows, books, movies. No happens all the time. And yet it's day one, rule one. And I'm not sure if it should be. That's my own improv philosophy thing. So however you all want to start this thing, I'm going to try to deny whatever it, whatever it is you all are talking about. If you all want to be on the same team and kind of speak with one, not the same identical voice, but be on the same side or whatever uh, discussion is we're having, I think that's fine. But I'm going to try to elegantly deny yet still have the scene progress. So regardless of what side of it we're on, everything you say or Mark says, potentially, we could be on the same team, you said, but it's, it's just negating everything that you're saying. I'm just... I won't do it all the time. I still want to have a good scene, but I just want to kind of illustrate. All right. Yes and is not the only option here. We can yes without anding. Perhaps it's deeper than just the language, just the words yes and and. Perhaps me simply wanting to be in the scene with you is yes anding. Even if my character is completely recalcitrant and grouchy or whatever they are, it's that yes and is deeper than just the words yes and and. That's what I tell my family when I'm around them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I would add, so Stephen, since our topic has two positions, two poles, Ooh, uh, I think wow. we could still take those up, you and I, and sort of argue that while still being on the same side as discursants, as opposed to Bill, who uh, can be our fly in the ointment, our monkey in the middle. All right. I'll take that one of that Scottish Enlightenment philosopher that we didn't talk about. Sounds good. Okay. Already done more planning than any improv scene yes, should, yes, yes. <laughs> should involve. Oh, boy. I'm going to lose my life. Well, I'm telling you, I don't, I don't care what your friends say. They might feel like, oh, you can just kind of decide whether, you know, it's okay to drink, whether what you're supposed to believe, but you got to focus on your core values on just use your freaking brain mark that's what you told your wife mm. that's what i'm telling you bill my son bill don't let this guy railroad you like this okay like he's talking about values and principles and oh you got to stick to your gut you got to stick to your core these things that you've reasoned to about how to behave or not to behave what you got to do is stick to your gut i'm just trying to eat my lunch 
All right. And if you guys want to find another table to have your, your discussion, that's fine. No, it's pointless to have a conversation without an audience. Okay. I learned this. You need to listen right now. Just eat your lunch and learn from us for a bit. And Bill, you are the ideal person to sort of sit in this debate because you're such a freaking sheep. You just do whatever the people around you think it seems to be okay. Right now, people are just calmly eating your lunch. And so you're, oh, I'm just calmly eating my lunch. But you gotta reflect, take it to sort of the core principles of reason. What should I actually be doing now? Which is? Are you finishing my lunch so I can go back to my desk? Uh, Exactly. He should be embodying his human feelings and sentiment, what he is feeling in the moment. That is the ultimate guide of how we get from what we should be doing to what is, is versus ought. Am I right? You guys, I kind of blame social media, this whole idea that you can't have an opinion if there's no audience. You're allowed to just have your opinion, even if no one ever. Steve, Bill is not in touch with his feelings okay, at Mark, all. He had to rely Mark. on his feelings. Those are my chips. To figure those out are what my to chips. do. Those are my chips. If you had and, to they're, and they're delicious. Mm. Thank you very much. I didn't, you, neither of you asked. I'm feeling like they're the best chips I've ever had. I think that these are a little stale and uh, it's plebe food, you know, eating chips out of a bag. Come on. Do you know what your problem is? You judge the chips before you actually see the, the circumstantial bag of chips in front of you. You already judge every chip as stale before you even put it in your mouth. You got to look to the moments. You can't just set up these rules that all chips are stale and then just live by them regardless of what hits you in the world. What if the best bag of chips just falls on your desk? I had some experiences as a young person that really taught me what an ideal chip should be. You ever have those Flex, I think was the brand. They're probably, you're you're young people, you probably don't have this anymore, but those things were just ideally crispy. It's like you could just even put them in the freezer. Could you pass me one of those paper towels? Yes, take the whole roll. Oh, thank you. You you actually got something on your cheek there. Thank you. Yeah. Listen, I don't don't care about your universal chips. It's the greatest chip, no matter what barbecue you ever go to. The different chips lend themselves to different situations. The idea that you could come up with some perfect chip is naive, it's nostalgic, it's oversimplified. And that's exactly what you're trying to do is remove the complexity of the situation. You're trying to reduce it down to these these rigid rules of chips. What are you doing, Mark? I think it's okay to have rules that have provisos in them. Any set of rules should be flexible to the situation, but you can't rely on the subjectivity of the individual who is tasting that thing at that particular moment. They could be all screwed up They could have just eaten some vinegar. They could have had some trauma with their tongue. Sorry to interject here. What would you consider the ideal work lunch? What would that look like? (laughs) One where you're silent and listen to us speak. I mean, really? When your intellect is stimulated to the maximum potential, so you forget even that you're eating it all. I think the whole point of going to having lunch is to let go of mental stimulation. I've been at the office since... 8 a.m. I want some time to not be mentally. I want to be dumb for 30 minutes. You actually think our jobs require even a tenth of a percent of your actual brain? I mean, yeah, it's busy work. Uh, Oh, did I email the, the guy that I was supposed to email? Did I have the reports? But the actual work itself is beneath all of us. You should be spending as much of your brain as possible on this high level stuff. Focus on remembering to pack napkins in your lunch next time. Well, I know we have napkins here. There's paper towels here. I wouldn't bring them if I didn't know we didn't. Look, maybe I'm just a drip, 
that I take my job seriously, but I kind of take my job seriously. All right. I want to get paid. I've got a, a family and I want to do a good job. Right. Tell me about that family for a second. Your wife, how did you meet her? This is going to focus back to Mark here in a second. How did you meet your wife? Went in college. Yeah. And when you went on that date, did you have a set of rigid parameters that she needed to meet, a checklist, so to speak, of who she needed to be on the date or else you were never going to consider her? Well, I mean, you kind of do and you kind of don't, right? I mean, if she was like, had horrible BO, you know, that's a strike or two strikes right there, you know, but I'm willing to give it a shot, you know. Let me ask you this as you eat more of your chips. Have you ever been on a date with somebody that meets all of the check boxes, this tentative checklist that you have, but you still don't feel something towards them? You still don't feel that je ne sais quoi, that attraction to them, where you want to commit yourself to them and start a family and then go to your job with two people arguing in front of you? Well, I mean, in college, I mean, going to be perfectly honest, I was just kind of wanted a good time. I wasn't really looking for a, a Yeah, partner. exactly. And, and how many miserable, screwed up relationships were you in before you met your wife because you just followed the gut of the moment and what seemed appropriate? Well, I, I mean, a few, but I didn't really, I wasn't too invested in it. I was in college. My question is what contributes to actual moral action? What makes you go from just having a state of affairs in the world, a person in front of you, to actually going on a second date with them? Was it all of the reasons being there that Mark can talk about, all of the principles, all the lessons that you've learned throughout your life, or was it a feeling that you had towards them? You can have all the feelings in the world and never want to go on a second date with the person. You're never going to go. So what actually got you to behave morally? I don't want to be crude, but we kind of banged on our first date, and I think we, we both thought it was going to be over, but I think we were just kind of lonely, and then in being lonely, we decided we actually liked each other. I don't know if that's got a cart before the horse, but... Uh, well, Mark has a moral principle to never bang on the first date. I actually think someone who would bang on the first date, that shows if that's the kind of person you're looking for, you know, which clearly because you were willing to do that, that shows initial compatibility and is a way of trying out something right then and there. And I think Bill's story shows that you don't have to have the overwhelming feelings that this is going to you know, fulfill my life that We know human nature, if the objective circumstances are there, the feelings will most likely come, maybe not in all circumstances, but you know, there's a reason why arranged marriages work at about the same percentage as so-called love marriages. Oh, Mark, but you're saying that like he makes some calculated moral decision there. Like, oh, she meets all the objective criteria, so therefore I'm going to bang her. They banged because of a feeling. It was a feeling that he followed in the moment. Yeah, but what made the second date? It was at a frat party. You're both kind of drunk, you know, it's kind of any port in a storm, you know? Yeah, which is actually a good point on Mark's side of it, right? Feelings are not some constant quantifiable thing in themselves, right? Like, do you trust drunk people's feelings as a motivation for behavior? Yeah, exactly. Do you trust exactly. people that are on medication? Do you trust people that just have different temperaments, different personalities? These are all things to consider. However, on my side of it, I would say that Mark is naive because reason is not some constant thing either. It's not as though we can just reason to a way to behave in the world and then always stick by it regardless of circumstances. There's nothing universal. Reason is contingent upon culture. There are multiple reasonable ways that you can arrive at the same conclusion, multiple different reasonable conclusions to arrive at that are mutually exclusive. Yeah, but within a context, so within the context of Bill's life, he found that fulfilling loneliness at least was a good short-term goal. Wanting to sex was a good short-term goal. And that put them in a position where they could have the time to not only sort of develop feelings, but I, again, allege that that only works in a long-term way if the criteria match up, right? And maybe you don't know what those are in advance. You can't necessarily say, 
oh, we have to do all the same activities because there are plenty of models of marriages where the people don't have anything in common such that you could just write out a, a quick criteria. I'm not saying that these logical, reasonable criteria are easy to get to, and I'm not saying that they are universal, but that they are things that certainly you, you should be learning from your own mistakes so that when you see that, ah, this person who treated me poorly, maybe I, it sort of got me off to have somebody who is a little bit of a, a bad girl. But now I find when that turned out to be a hell on earth, I'm going to avoid that next time, you know? So it's having these rules that to bring to bear to override momentary impulses and keep you from doing stupid stuff. Did either of you bring a lunch? Did you bring it? I mean, is this, this is my lunch. I'm eating all the smoke Mark's throwing my way. Nom, nom, nom. I mean, I'm, I'm appreciating you're going to eat those crusts that you took off the uh, sandwich there. I mean, the, the little extra drippings. Was this by design or was this just impulsive that you would just talk over me while I'm eating? What moral checklist does this validate? It was sort of spontaneous. Yeah, it, it was based on feeling. And look, to Mark's point, people don't make decisions based on those criteria. And the idea that feelings are separate from this set of criteria that you've come up with. Your feelings in a given moment is not some separated, alienated, irrational, monkey-like state that you're in where you just act impulsively and uh, without forethought. Your feeling at a given moment, your intuition, if you will, is based on all of the collective experiences you've had in the past and all the reasoning that you've done about what the proper decorum is moving forward before that. I mean, it's not as though we're just flying off the seat of our pants here. We are basing that off of all the contemplation that we've had in the past. I mean, it sounds like you are talking about a rational cultivation of feelings. And I am all for that, that, you know, of course, there must be something about the nature of feelings that allows them to be rationally I'm just cultivated. Gonna, I'm, I'm done. I'm just going to ball up my trash. Well, you know, I, I think that if you walk away now, you might really miss something that next time you get married. Is this your water bottle or is this, do I need to, I can put it on the lost and found counter unless it's one of yours. No, it is yours. No, no, it's not yours. No. Okay, I'll bring it up to the, the counter. Uh, thanks, fellas. Thanks. I th- Thank you, Bill. I th- think <laughs> we talk. I think we can agree, Steve, that uh, Bill needs a lot of work. Let's, let's uh, come back tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, we did it. Thanks for bearing with me there. I mean, it was informative. I didn't mm-hmm. know how to include you in the conversation because I'm so bad at improv, but thank you for uh, <laughs> indulging us there. I thought it went fine, right, Mark? Even though I totally shot down what you were going for at the beginning? Yes. I guess there's certain advantages to having the improv scene having a philosophical conversation because <laughs> then <laughs> other than that, we could be a little silly with it. It wouldn't have been terribly different apart from the lunchroom dynamic, but it was way more entertaining, I think, than it would have been if it was merely. You have an audience, me, rolling their eyes. And, you know, if this was on video, just the awkwardness of someone being between this, that's where the humor is. And if your philosophy is sound or full of Swiss cheese holes, it's the dynamic of the scene is this poor guy stuck in the middle, as far as improv goes. The philosophy was, however, very sound, I felt. So how did you feel, Steve? Where is the line? How are you conducting that discussion differently than if we were just not in a scene? Well, I'm embodying an opinion that I don't necessarily agree with fully. I'm trying to be charitable to it, steel man it. But that's what I do on Philosophize This all the time. So I'm kind of in my element there. I was excited about coming on another show because I could actually have my own pluralistic sort of pers- perspective, <laughs> but this is great. I love just the uh, way that uh, Carneades, an old philosopher, did just to argue, to entertain ideas without necessarily accepting them. And it was cool that I got to be on the side of Hume there for a second. Okay. Steve mentioned Hume. We've talked about Hume before. We've also talked about Kant before. 
those name drops, I think we've gotten far enough. We're in season two now. Sure. Maybe are not scary. So Kant's take on ethics is very much reason based. Hume's is at least ultimately boils down to just like his take on aesthetics that we talked about for a whole episode down to the experiences people actually have. So their emotional reactions to things. Now, were they contemporaries? No. Kant was after Hume. Yes. Hume awoke him from his dogmatic slumber. That's what made him work so hard to create his purely rational system. Okay. I was certainly picking up on this like theory versus experience or ideal versus real or principled versus on the ground situational kinds of things. Those might not be the exact (laughs) things that those two philosophies entailed, but I think that's kind of in the ballpark. Yeah, sure. Or is it exclusively morality? Take a swing, Stephen. Oh, no, I don't think you're too far off. I think there's two different conversations we can have. Ultimately, what we wanted to discuss is reason versus sentiment as what grounds ethical decisions. When you're choosing what's right or wrong in the world as like what you're going to do, do you reason to maxims or even principles if you want to go further than that in terms of what the correct decision is moving forward? And do you stick to those principles or do you base it on your feelings in the moment, which may be dictated by circumstances, context, the relationships you have to other people? The person on the feeling or the sentiment side of it is going to say that we don't have the luxury of principles. person on the principled side of it is going to say we don't have the luxury of just going based off of our feelings and however the situation immediately makes us feel. I mean, we all have an example in our life of a time when our emotions got the better of us and we wish that we would have thought about it more. But I think somebody on the sentiment side, to contrast that, would say that we've all come up with rules, for example, as per our conversation in the dating world, where we come up with rigid parameters somebody has to meet. But we just have a gut feeling about a situation and we go with that and it ends up working out. Yeah, (laughs) you can see both those things. As an improviser, I'm often thinking about how these personalities would manifest themselves in an improv scene. An impulsive, I wouldn't say impulsive person, but a more feeling driven person versus a more thought or principle driven person. And we've certainly met those people in our lives. Sometimes those hard thought about principles win the day. And we all love movies where someone's principles, you know, never say die. And we're going to have that protest and we're going to see it through. And even though the police are going to beat us, we're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. But then we've also seen movies where, you know, I mean, that's hubris, isn't it? I mean, that's also how people get sunk by going down with the ship. And the same thing on the other side as well. I'm I'm sure there's characters from our own lives who we just wish they would just think a little more, (laughs) more often. And then people who are just fuddy duddies and stuck up and boring that we wish they would get out and drink more fully right that might be a little tangential but no no i was trying to show in the previous thing that the one who adheres to principles doesn't have to necessarily be spock because the principles could concern how to deal with yourself as a feeling being right in other words i think the picking a girlfriend is a a very good like i feel like i got burned a few times in college And then like, I was not going to get burned that same way. And so my way of sticking to a principle was not like, I'm just going to shut down and fill out an online profile. They didn't have those back in my day, but it was still about, I'm not just going to say yes because somebody else is willing. I'm going to have standards and being nice to me, which is a feeling thing that I can tell that has to be the most important thing. Like somebody who's not going to ruin my life. You know, I will say, talking about computer dating, I feel like before actual computer dating, many sitcoms from the 70s and whatnot had computer dating as like a a thing and like, it's infallible. It's perfect. 
And now we actually have computer dating and it's like, well, no, it's gee whiz. It's, it's, it's just an excuse to meet somebody. It's not even like it's getting rid of the obvious red flags. Yeah. 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 Did you go to the, whichever types of protests you don't like? Are you interested in a date? Are, Are you even here to date? Great. They'll start at consent. Yeah. I think. A synthesis I can kind of take from this is if one wants to, one can create a false dichotomy. They can say that the reasoning principled side of things means that you have to be Spock or that the feeling side of things means it's totally irrational. It's just fly by the seat of your pants in the moment. What Kant called morality being anthropology, basically. It's just studying how humans get feelings from their subjective experience with the world. And I think the truth of the matter lies somewhere in the middle. I think you can sit on either side of this debate if you wanted to and just wake up 65 years old and and have argued about it for your entire life. It's like a lot of debates in philosophy. But I think from my own personal perspective, it is more pluralistic. It is sort of in the middle. You need both of these for different moments in life. Maybe on the dating world, one of them is more useful than another. And in another situation, you're going to have to be more principled. How do you feel about the insurance deal being offered you? you (laughs) Yeah. I think we've also met people who fall on one side or the other. And sometimes it's annoying and sometimes it's pleasant, you know, and like, you need to hire somebody. What job are they doing? Well, they're the office manager and they're going to manage payroll. Go no further. They're managing payroll. They need to be a principal person. They, they need to be more on that spectrum than the visceral spectrum. So it sounds like you're wanting us to somehow embody these. I wouldn't mind actually in the second scene being the naysayer, being the, the neither. Sure. That was my plan. Now, if you noticed, I did it early and with an emotion around it. I didn't just say a dispassionate no, and I had to accept what was happening. Does that make sense? And that's the difference. Do you even accept what's happening? Now, there may be a a context for what's happening. I mean, every twist in a movie or TV show, what happened happened. We just see it through a different lens. Oh, this person is split personality. So what we were seeing was actually, now that was true what we were seeing. But we were seeing it through this lens of a second personality or this, oh, they're actually in purgatory. Now it all, you know, makes. Mm -hmm. So think about that as you're shooting down whatever it is (laughs) Steve or myself go for here early. But eventually you then need to accept this reality and live in it just as I did. Cool. So I'm I'm slow. (laughs) I'm super slow just in general. So you're just going to create like an alternate reality and I'm just sort of. Well, that's improv, isn't it? I mean, telling Mark that if he's going to say no to what it is I'm saying. It isn't actor to actor. No, it's character to character. No. Mm -hmm. And it might actually be, I accept what you're saying is happening. However, I want to change the lens through which we see it. Oh, I see. Okay. So like try to get him to see it from a different perspective that may turn him around to your side of it. Well, he's going to get me to see it because I may start the scene with like, I know exactly how this is going. Just as you know, in his mind, it was a father talking to a son. And I'm like, I don't reject what you said, but I do reject the framing of how this conversation is happening. I want it to be in a lunchroom. Now, it took some negotiating back and forth to land on that and agree on that, but we all did. And then the scene continued on. Well, I'm going to try my hardest. And fair warning, if I fail miserably, there's still comedy to that. So I didn't actually totally fail. Correct. And we can even have a, what is failure? Go. It's just a a way to learn. And if we change your expectations, maybe it was a success. There we go. Methinks the voices in my head doth speak some strange future dialect. I will try to listen more closely to them. What have they to say to me? Hey, where are the voices in your head? I think we're hungry. Steve, are we hungry? I think we're hungry. Are we hungry? I'd, I'd say you're hungry. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm hungry as well. We're hungry. The voices in my head speak in riddles, for I have just eaten a great meal. And why would voices in my head be asking for more food? Doth they want to make me a, a fatso? Great meal. That was kind of a thin gruel with a piece of almost moldy bread. I mean, that was, we can do better, right? Tis the repast of our time. Thin gruel. It was the soup of the day. Okay, look, people are starting to look at you, look at us. Maybe we should have this conversation, you know, under a tree or something, you know. Uh, people around me, I, I, as you know, I am a great poet and I sometimes think aloud. So I have covered uh, my bases. No one will think me merely an insane person. They're all person. looking at you. Everyone's looking at you. Everyone cares about what you're doing right now. Everyone's judging you. As they... Dude, Steve, Steve, why would should. you do that? Why would you do that, He Steve? needs to know. He absolutely needs to know. His shirt was not ironed this morning. Everyone's judging you for it. One's thoughts, when they uh, arrive on paper, will fly out to the world and be judged. So one's creations of the thoughts may as well be judged as well. I think you're doing great. Mm, I think he's rationalizing some justification for a wrinkly shirt. Nobody should be wearing outside, especially past Memorial Day. What are you doing? Everyone's judging you right now, Mark. Wrinkly shirts show the bohemian character of my creative mind. Exactly. And I think, look, everyone's going to judge. Haters are going to hate. All right. Feel free to coin that. Feel free to write that down. Strange. Haters are going to hate. That, that is a uh, man. I am very smart. Hey, look around you. Each and every one of those people. Those are the haters. And they're hating on you right now. I don't care if you have a bohemian shirt. I don't care if you listen to Queen. I don't care if you ironed it with and if you put your neck ruffles on just so everyone looks at you. And they're disgusted by you. I, I do listen to what the queen requires in a, a new literary production. That is true. And as is right for any uh, right thinking uh, poet of the realm. Any subject should listen to the queen. That is correct. And that's fine. That's all you'll ever be as a subject of the queen. You'll never be royalty. You'll never be part of the aristocracy. You're a mere artisan at best, a technician. Steve, can we try to find something positive? And your work isn't even that good. Can we try to find something positive in this situation? All you right. made me a birdhouse the other day and it broke. It okay. broke, Mark. You have one job to do in this entire 17th century and you can't even make a birdhouse correctly. Okay, Steve. Look at yourself in that Steve, broken Steve, mirror. Steve, I need you to count to 10, okay? I need you to quietly count to 10 here, all right? I'll count the number of ways that Mark is horrible. One, he has a wrinkled shirt. Me too. He thinks His that neck uh, demons of the mind while valuable for creative endeavors, uh, should not take control, should not determine one's self-esteem, which is determined by to create art at all. You have to have You're a lot of... You're just white uh, knuckling it right now. You're just squeezing the, the arms of the chairs, trying to convince yourself that these thoughts, everyone has them. That's creative, right? Everyone has it. No, you're troubled. You're miserable, Mark. The queen looks at you and you are but a subject that she doesn't even take pride in. She doesn't even want to give you bread and circuses. Do you work in a field, right? Whipping an oxen, shoving a plow. No, you don't. You escaped that and you're a poet and a playwright. An unemployed poet. That doesn't Who matter. Sells that doesn't matter. Birdhouses that are, most of which are serviceable. Some of, some of which I used to work in problems. the fields, but now I don't work in the field. I'm unemployed and I write my little finger paintings about poetry in my room. That's not moving up in the world, Mark. That's moving down, which wasn't easy for you. You started at the bottom of the mountain, buddy. Who said you have to move up? Up to what? Let's not take on other people's criteria, Mark. People came, did people come to your play? 
people came to your play that you had on the, on the back of that the, wagon. Yes, they did, didn't they? Yes. And they clapped, didn't they? And they were happy and you brought them joy. Did you bring everyone in the world joy? No, but that's a kind of a unrealistic expectation, isn't it? But yet it will be fulfilled, I believe, in my heart of hearts. We can work towards that, but let's not judge ourselves against some unrealistic expectation. You will believe that in your heart of hearts as you eat oatmeal in your mother's basement for the rest of your life. Hey, your mother has a basement. That's pretty good. That's doing pretty good. She doesn't live in a hovel with dung Waddle and Dob. Okay? Yeah, at least someone in his whole genetic history did something with their lives. Not Mark, though. He's just going to stand on stand on the shoulders of his giant mom who got a house with a basement. Who you'll never do anything. My Mark. giant mom. That's a that sounds like a good title for a new play. My giant. It could very well be. Jot it down. We we write everything down, don't we, Mark? Nothing is wasted. And perhaps write this down. I'm a loser. I don't do anything. Don't with write my that life. down. Don't write that down. I I will write that down in quotes because I think that a person who is beset by inner demons with a giant mom that's and beautiful perhaps the demons are only there because of the giant mom and the resentment that one might feel towards a mom that is so big it has such a small heart that perhaps couldn't uh, support the poet writing of the of the great artist yeah you know, steve here's what i want to do i want you to say one thing that mark does well and then i will say one th- critique of mark something he could work on okay and I think that if we can just go through this extra, take, take on a point of view we don't necessarily agree with or subscribe to. Hmm, this, okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Is this, this idea of taking... Mark. I will do the same. Mark, you are very, I got to be honest, you're very good at convincing yourself that you're not a total piece of shit. Okay, Steve. I'm gonna say, I saw that coming a mile away. He's got great <laughs> argument tactics. I mean, the mental gymnastics this guy has to go through just to wake up in the morning, just to put his neck ruffles on in his boots buckles on his shoes it's pathetic let's just can we just try once to take on a different point of view maybe it's one you don't agree with but just try it on and i'll do the same in fact i'll go first you want me to go first i'll go first that would help okay mark i think you spend too much time playing checkers and watching other people's plays and i think you could spend that time could be better spent working on your own materials now you're speaking my language that is a good point i agree with that now steve what is something that you could say positive about mark that's honestly positive i think i get the exercise here okay mark you are very good at cobbling together enough days where you have not walked off of a cliff or walked in front of a car or something you can survive day to day without doing something totally stupid. And that is admirable to me. This is all synthesizing. These voices that taunt me from different directions, synthesizing into the idea that maybe instead of watching plays and playing checkers, one could combine those things, sort of have a visual game experience where you're interacting with an audience, but perhaps not on a, perhaps a captured audience, perhaps on a screen. You're starting to twitch, Mark. You're starting to twitch a lot. And, and I don't think that's, this is, that's healthy. The genius is flowing. The genius is flowing through. I don't subscribe to that idea at all. I think it's actually just a, a throwaway point, honestly. You know, something is flowing. And hey, you know what it means? Fail now so you succeed sooner, right? <laughs> Fuck you both. I'm going to drink and drink and drink <laughs> until you're silent. Yeah. <laughs> drink, yeah. guzzle, guzzle, guzzle. The end. Yay. Right. Yay. You got what you wanted, Mark. I wasn't sure. 
Stephen, how did you see your taking the critical point as mapping? Was it trying to map to the reason versus emotion thing at all, or, or this was just a different dichotomy? No. In fact, I didn't even know that was the prompt. I was oh. just trying to survive, <laughs> to be honest with you. I was trying to not ruin the scene. I am a babe in the woods when it comes to improv, and I'm, I feel like I'm learning here, though. Steve, that was fantastic. The most difficult hurdle is understanding the reality. We are voices in this guy's head, and he is obviously from the Victorian or Elizabethan <laughs> era. <Something>. Uh, <laughs> Although perhaps I was just a pretentious douche as Stephen was talking about my listening to Queen and maybe it's, it's talks, just yeah. uh, 1980. <laughs> to accept that and for all of us to accept the same reality is the most difficult part. That's the hardest thing to see it, find your home and do it. And if we can roll back the tape, there may be a line or two or three where we're not all exactly seeing it the same way. But clearly after... 10 lines, 12 lines, we're all seeing it the same way. And once we're all seeing it the same way, we can contribute to it. I thought that was great. So at the beginning there, I was trying to read the scene. I was trying to read what you guys were going for. And I didn't know. And I didn't want to take it in any direction. And so I just sort of reiterated what you just said. Oh, yeah, I think we're hungry. But it felt like a little bit of a cop-out. But I was trying to get more information so that I could play off of you more. Is that okay in improv? Or do you have to always add something? That not only is that okay, I encourage that. It is yesing without anding. And there is, we've been knowing, we've been knowing. It's very much encouraged. How many improv scenes have been, as a viewer, do you watch? And like, that was amazing, but I have no idea what I just saw. The answer is few, limited. Generally, the more the audience understands, the more they enjoy it. Same thing is true with movies, TV shows, books. If you don't know what's going on, chances are you're not going to enjoy it. Now there's mystery and there's ambiguity as artistic devices, but those are different. Especially in this scene early on, I thought you did a fantastic job yesing without ending. I was not expecting any more from you than that because I knew once you found it and once you were on sound footing, you'd push exceptionally hard. In fact, you pushed very hard. Clearly you understood what was going on because you were making very bold choices as, as it went along. Very good. It's fantastic. So I can make a transition here. One of the, the layers of this reason versus emotion things, the reason that I picked it, in fact, was because on a recent episode of Steve's on Philosophize This, he uh, took on this uh, feminist psychologist, Carol Gilligan, who was looking at standards that psychologists had drawn in the past, you know, before her in the 70s, I guess, for moral maturity. And it sort of came down to having a conscience, right? Having an impersonal, a reason-based, a something that would come in and stop your urges. <laughs> that is a thing that two-year-olds certainly don't have, even if you could perhaps reason with that. Oh, that's very mean what you did. Don't you see how that was mean? Like, okay, maybe they could get that, but they're certainly not going to get to the point of having a set of principles. So that is what, do you remember it was a Kohler? Kohlberg. Kohlberg. Okay. Yes. A previous psychologist had, has posited and Gilligan came along and said, actually, this is a super sexist way of judging because they found that women notoriously would fail at this, were judged by be emotionally immature by the standard. And so she thought maybe that there are multiple ways of becoming morally mature. And so she put forward another one. You could say it's specifically female, but you know, clearly you see these tendencies in people of both sexes. So it came to, do you want to, Stephen, explain sort of the ethics of care alternative briefly? Sure. Yeah. So society, Gilligan said, conditions men 
to be problem solvers and women to be caregivers. So when they're testing the moral maturity of children at different stages of development, and they're basing it on a standard of justice and this sort of very Enlightenment era, almost Kantian principled way of making moral decisions as independent, autonomous, self-interested moral subjects. This is not the place that everybody makes moral choices from. And it's not the only way that you could see a situation and then judge what the best action is moving forward. Women, be it through social conditioning, be it through biology, when they studied them and they listened to their voice, they just found that they make decisions more based, more considering the relationships between the people involved, the circumstantial, contextual things that are going on, and they arrive at different conclusions because of that. And from there, her work was taken up by people like Nell Nottings and Joan Tronto and Virginia Held and many, many others. It's an ongoing, flourishing lane in ethics today, but they are building an ethics around care as an ultimate imperative rather than things like justice or things like freedom, you know, things that in traditional morality we would base things around. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. <laughs> There's, I mean, that actually, as a joke, There's the whole thing of the notion of the cave and the well, which is in those books, kind of fits in with that. And it, One thing I will say, though, just to be respectful of people that are in the ethics of care now is that they don't see it as a primarily female morality, even though it is feminist in the sense that it is a contrast to philosophy as it's been done for the last couple thousand years. It is ultimately a critique of Western philosophy. It just most of those Western voices were predominantly male. So feminism is going to have a different opinion than a lot of those. And it isn't something that is predominantly female or even just women have more of an access point. It is something that is an entirely new dynamic way of viewing society, of structuring society that would lead to different outcomes, I think. Sure. That makes total sense. But you can have the meta discussion about, I actually just had this with my co-host on Partially Examined Life, of is having people from different demographics represented, having their voices amplified, having them represented in whatever the field is, is that in itself useful? It seems like no, that's just, you know, that would be essentializing what it is to be female or essentializing what it is to be black or whatever. But historically, we see it's not a biological inevitability that men would come up with this Kohlberg type of measure of, of emotional maturity and that Carol Gilligan, a woman studying women, would come up with the alternative. There are other possible ways that that could have happened, but it is not an accident that it actually did happen that way. And so Absolutely. that's a prima facie reason. You know, a great example, if somebody says, why do we need representation in science? Why do we need? Well, because you just don't know what having a different point of view is going to bring. And the point of views, again, I think you could talk about point of view without essentializing like, oh, well, this is what women are like. This is what people of color are like, whatever. What you're essentially saying is if there's only one way to reach moral maturity denies the fact that there's just so many different people, so many different Mm -hmm. ways of doing things. And if you say that, well, half the people on earth have a women have a taller hill to climb to reach moral maturity. It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Most morally mature people I know are women in general. So to say that there must be another way for a society to have some kind of moral maturity. And I don't know if that made any sense. Well, yes. And but, if <laughs> what's well, just this idea that once you went, and again, philosophy can be very detached and that detachment could very well be a male centric thing. like talking about relationships between people and whatnot. Well, that's very not detached. That's very on the ground versus principles. And if one has a vision of, oh, there's sort of a male morality and a female morality, then that is ripe for a dialectical opposition for somebody who does not think in terms of gender 
you know, and would dismiss all this talk as heteronormative or binary or, you know, somehow restrictive. And I think this is another way of stating the reason versus emotions thing is that whatever the principle is, even if the principle is men are from Mars, women are from Venus, there's room for actual experience of people, of individuals, lived experience to throw a wrench in a theoretical system, even though all theoretical systems tend to resist that kind of stuff. That's the point of it being a theory is you've brushed away, you've abstracted from the individual experiences. It seems very difficult. We've talked about like math and science. It seems very difficult to think that the principles of geometry that somebody's come up with could be if some artist comes along and says, oh no, I experience things in a fundamentally different way. I, I just dropped some acid yesterday. That should challenge your uh, Euclidean notion of geometry. You could see both how the proponents of the existing theory would think that's absolute nonsense. No one's experience could come along. But then knowing the history of Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry and alternate, like, no, actually, you know, someone breaking open the doors of perception through a real experience maybe could give some new material for theoretical physics or, you know, some supposedly very hard science to think about to provide an alternative. Right. I think when it comes to the ethics of care, in particular. I tried to say this in the episode, but I think that it's often been reduced, uh, her work and then the work of subsequent thinkers, as women's ethics. It's sort of relegated to this substatus or, or a virtue ethic, of a virtue and a larger umbrella of a virtue ethics where care is a virtue just like patience is a virtue or something like that. And how much gender is the reason why this critique manifested in the world of philosophy I think is up in the air. I, I think it's important for us to think of it as just merely a critique as thing that opens up a new lane of conversation in morality, something that transcends gender. But I also think to ignore the fact that gender was the reason why this alternative way of thinking, that the fact that women were subjugated, the fact that people doing research in the field of developmental psychology weren't studying young girls and weren't studying women and considering that there are alternative ways of achieving moral maturity I think to leave that out is to be missing a big part of the story. Sure. You may not be sexist or racist, but you must accept that others are both present and past. And their decisions had an impact on what what the truth is today. And there's work to be undone. And improv is just the way (laughs) to do it. I feel like we are wrapping up here. Do you want to reiterate what the lesson was, Bill, since it's been three minutes? We can say no. We, We can be especially up at the top of the scene before we've really settled into what it is going to be. We can be a little more erratic and have fun with it and, and be willing to be disruptive in an effort to shake something new out, to be the care philosophy, to mm. <laughs> dislodge our stodgy, whatever the first person who talks, they get the conk and they get to call the tune. No, there are other ways of doing it. We can arrive at our scene together. So Stephen, are, are you in a position now where you can... Compare the apple and the orange to say whether that practical bit of improv advice or this multi-layered discussion that we just had on reason versus the emotions, which one of those, or do you have a question or a further thought before you? Mm -mm, No. All right. Cast your judgment. In many ways, I've thought about this since the day I was born. Listen, man, I'm saying this as somebody that's a fan of philosophy that is like a philosophy drug dealer to people for a living, but... This conversation about reason versus sentiment, as interesting as it is, and as much as it may inspire thought in people, I don't think it's really world-changing. I think that, again, you can have this conversation ad nauseum and never really arrive at any conclusion that does anything for you in your life. However, when it comes to improv, the practical thing that I learned there is that it is okay to say yes without the comma and. 
You, you don't necessarily need to add something to a conversation. You can even say no and not add anything and be a participant in the world. And I think in, a, in an age, in an age where people go on social media and they feel they have to always say their thoughts on things. And I think it can definitely be good to voice your opinion on things. You can also be muddying the waters a bit and making conversation more difficult for people around you, not necessarily on social media, but just in your like interpersonal life. I guess I'll just say, I'm going to say that the life-changing lesson is the one I learned from improv, which is that it's okay to, that of which we cannot speak, we must remain silent. I was thinking that. <laughs> Very nice. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know that one. I don't know that one. Let me in on the inside joke here. It is, uh, no, in a future it's episode. the end of the Tractatus. <laughs> oh, it's, my it's bad. Wittgenstein. All right, it's Wittgenstein. Okay. We'll make that a, a future thing. Okay, that's the, all right. That's the nature of closings, is that we see doors in the distance to open later. I would love to have you come back at some point in a year or something, perhaps with a, with an improv guest. It seems like you were, despite your uh, trepidation, you exhibited that comfort that you denied having. Oh, thank you, Mark. That was great. Thanks, Bill. And thank you for both for being patient with me. This is first time I've done it in like four years. It was outstanding. Well, let's bring the voices in our listeners' heads to, to a, <laughs> a grateful silence. Don't we wish we could all silence the voices in our own heads? I learned a lot from you today, Bill and Steve. And I learned a lot from, from you, Mark and Steve. And I love you both, as well as everyone <laughs> listening. And, and scene. Well, that sure was a fun discussion with Stephen West, a wonderful philosophy podcaster. Check out his monologue podcast, Philosophize This, if you've not already. And you can learn about our podcast at philosophyimprov.com. Make sure you are subscribed directly to the Philosophy versus Improv feed so that you get all the episodes and get them promptly. We would love if you would leave a review and rating on the Philosophy versus Improv page at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. We would also love your support. And if you give that support, not only do you get ad-free episodes, but you get our post-game segments, which in this case, we talked to Stephen for another 25-ish minutes or so about whether philosophy needs to be practical, about his philosophy podcast and his unaired interview with Adam Carolla. This is an exclusive story. Again, patreon.com slash philosophyimprov or just philosophyimprov.com slash support. If you don't like Patreon, you could support us straight through uh, Apple Podcast paid feed. In any case, thanks for listening. So long. Bankrupt. 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 Bankrupt.